Hi, welcome to Entitled to Life, a podcast about healthcare, advocacy, policy, and politics. I'm Paul Gibbs, your host. And I'm your other host, Katie Drake. And we're very excited about tonight's episode. Tonight we are talking about Utah's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, what has gone well, what's been good, what could be done differently, and what might what we should be looking at doing differently in the future. And our guests for this are Chris Peterson and Karina Andlin Brown, the Democratic candidates for governor and lieutenant governor of Utah. They'll also just be talking with us generally about their approach to healthcare issues in Utah. So first of all, thank you so much, both of you for joining us tonight. We appreciate this so much. Paul, Katie, thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to be on your podcast, and I'm excited to talk about um, the, the healthcare issues we're facing in the state tonight. And so it, it's just great to be here. Yeah, thank Karina, you, Paul, thank you, Katie. Um, and uh, we've talked before about the fact that we're pretty open on this show about we want to be as fair and accurate as possible, but we're, this isn't straight up journalism. We're we can be pretty open about what our point of view is. And I just want to make sure that I'm giving full disclosure right off the top of the program that Karina and I worked together extensively on Proposition 3 and on Medicaid expansion issues before then. And I can't think of anyone in the world that I'd rather have in our state government. So I'm not going to remotely pretend that I am not biased on this issue. I am. I strongly support both of these candidates, but I would support Karina for any office anyway. But well, we like you too, Chris. Don't <laughs> yeah, we do. Absolutely. <laughs> no, honestly, all, I appreciate your support. And I, it's been an honor to work with you over the last several years. It's been a real, real joy. Thank you so much. Honestly, this, I, I've been telling people this is completely true. I think this is the first time in my adult voting life that I've really been excited to vote in the governor's race because I really feel excited about the candidates we have on the Democratic ticket. So um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Let's start a little bit by talking about, about the pandemic. Now, Chris, I actually can't remember, had was the pandemic an issue yet when you when you made the choice to run for governor? No, it wasn't. I, um, uh, when the Democratic Party approached me and asked me to run for governor, I, I, it was still uh, just something that was maybe you know, barely starting lines in the newspaper about you know, the virus in China. It wasn't uh, something that I thought was going to become a critical issue in, in the campaign. But that being said, I do think that the symptoms of some of the problems in our response to the coronavirus crisis are the same kinds of mistakes that we're making in other areas of the government. And so in one respect, I think, no, I wasn't looking to run on the coronavirus, but I guess in a way I was because we have challenges listening to the public, listening to scientists and having nimble policy that actually takes care of working people in our state. That was a problem before the coronavirus crisis, and it's still a problem after it. Paul, you're on mute still. <laughs> Sorry, I... I muted myself, yeah. Um, I definitely completely agree with you on that. I see so many of the things that have concerned me 
with issues involving healthcare for the past seven years, I've been up at the Capitol lobbying on things. And it's been disconcerting to see some of these things continuing to go on during the pandemic. Um, let's talk, Chris, Karina, either of you, what, what specifically do you see as some of these problems that are making the issue, that are problems with our, our response to coronavirus? Well, I'll go ahead yes. and answer I, that. I, I right, and jump in on that. Um, well, I think I've been critical and, and thought about the large sums of money that have been spent on no big contracts. And I understand that you have to make quick decisions because it's a pandemic and this, you know, we haven't had this happen, you know, in our lifetime. Um, I understand that, but, but when something isn't working and it's, it still doesn't work. And there's, there was an offer uh, from a company to do it for free, to have a contact tracing app for free. And then there was no response. They, it was reported in the newspaper that there was no response from the administration. They didn't take them up on their offer for this free um, contact tracing app. Then I have some concerns with that, especially when we're in a state and they say, we don't have money for this. We don't have money for that. We don't have money for more education funding. We don't have money for this. Well, wait a second. <laughs> We have money to spend on large millions and millions of dollars that we can spend on, you know, these contracts for something that doesn't even work. Um, also, the legislature voted recently in a special session to close several low income health clinics in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm not sure exactly what the rationale for that was. Maybe it's because more people have Medicaid expansion now and they can have, they can go to their doctors. I'm not sure, but from, from just looking at that, to me, that is not a good decision to close clinics in the middle of a pandemic, especially when they're helping lower income people. Um, they hired a business consulting firm to help guide their decision-making in the pandemic. And I admire business, I admire logistics and organization, but I think there should have been um, some other input from scientific leaders and public health officials. And I know that they've coordinated with Dr. Angela Dunn, those weekly updates have been great, but I think there should be a more scientific and public health approach instead of a business um, consulting approach. Um, also, in, with the legislature in the special ses session, they voted to reduce the job qualifications for the executive director of the Department of Health and the deputy director of the Department of Health in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and so, to me, that is not a good decision. As lieutenant governor, though, I'm not a legislator, but uh, to me, if I was a legislator, I wouldn't vote to decrease the job qualifications for the executive and deputy directors of the Utah Department of Health. But I think top, um, executive leadership uh, in the executive branch of the government is important um, to give guidance to, to the state uh, and our priorities, our budget priorities. Um, I think there could have been more public education about the effectiveness of masks um, because there's still some communities in Utah in different areas that there's still some kind of wild ideas about do masks work, do they don't, do they work, do they not work? Um, and also I think they could have improved communication with educators and Utahns months ago before school started because it was like two weeks before school was gonna start and people were all stressed out. Should we start school? What's the plan? There's, I think there's 41 districts in the state of Utah. Each of them has their own different plan. And so I think more leadership uh, to help calm people's fears would be important months ago 
in addition, there's some people that still don't want to go to businesses. There's businesses shutting down. Um, we went and visited a brownie business and she was on the verge of shutting down when she was really uh, successful before the pandemic. And I know businesses will be hit hard during the pandemic, but I think we can do some things from a public health perspective and from a leadership perspective to ease people's fears so that they will go out uh, to businesses and spend money um, in, a, in a safe way, knowing that they're safe and then they, they don't have as much of a likelihood to get COVID. Thank you. So that's a lot you covered there and I agree yeah. with you. Chris, do you have anything you want to add to that? Sure. Yeah. There's one other thing I'll mention. I, I agree with everything Karina said. You can see why, what a, a fantastic thinker she is. And uh, I'm just so grateful to have her as a partner on the campaign. I, I'm going to mention one other thing though. And, and if it's, if you'll indulge me, I just want to uh, give a quick story. I, I remember in 1983 when I was probably about, I guess I would have been about nine years old. Um, uh, there was a historic snowfall that year, packed the mountains uh, in the Wasatch Front with a, an enormous amount of snow. And then when it got warm in the spring and early summer, the, the torrent, a flood came down uh, through all the canyons. And I remember. In, yeah, in City Creek Canyon, you may remember that the, the City Creek Canyon was about to overflow its banks and it was going to flood Temple Square and the downtown business district and a bunch of homes and apartment buildings and banks and, uh, uh, you know, the, some of the tallest office buildings in the state. It would have been a catastrophe, both for cultural reasons and business reasons. Uh, but the last Democratic governor of the state, Scott Matheson uh, uh, Sr., and the city mayor and, and the community came together to deal with a natural disaster with a simple and time-tested strategy. Uh, they stemmed that flood by putting sandbags along State Street, and they built a river right down State Street under the, the, the landmark Eagle Gate Bridge. That's uh, one of my earliest childhood memories. Yeah. <laughs> me too, Katie. My dad took me downtown to take a look at that. And I've seen pictures since, and it wasn't that big of a river, but to the eyes of a nine-year-old boy, it was enormous. It I was, agree. It was the Mississippi. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It, it was a lasting memory for me about what the power of communities can do with even a simple technology to try to come together to defeat a natural disaster. We have a natural disaster going on right now. Instead of a flood, we have a, nat a, a torrent of uh, a dangerous natural virus that's spreading throughout our communities and is making people sick. More people have died in Utah than all this year than all the traffic accidents combined. And across the country, it's much worse. We've, we've seen more people die, nearly 178,000 people so far and, and likely more to come. More than Americans than died in World War I and worse. Since the Second World War, including Vietnam and North Korea and the Korean War and all the Middle Eastern wars, it is a serious disease and we could come together and could do a better job in our state if we would just agree we must wear the equivalent of those sandbags in a flood, which are masks. They're not perfect technology. They're kind of dirty and they're unpleasant to put on your face, but they actually spread, stop the spread of the virus pretty effectively. Salt Lake County's done a pretty good job by imposing a, a, a countywide mask mandate. And a lot of the success that we've had has been in Salt Lake County, our, our biggest county, because of that mask mandate. I'm very grateful to Mayor 
Mayor Jenny Wilson for doing that. We need to do the same thing uh, at a statewide level. 30 states have already done that. Most of the countries that have been successful, more successful at us at stopping the spread, have had national mask mandates. If I were governor today, I would impose a statewide mask mandate, not just to keep ourselves and our healthy, but also to get people back to work and to business. Too many uh, Utahns are teetering on the brink of their businesses collapsing. Wave of evictions and home mortgage foreclosures that are coming down, uh, coming our way if we don't get serious about this virus. So that's one thing that I, I'm a little bit disappointed that uh, our current leadership has not had uh, the willingness to do that. I think a majority of Utahns want a, a mask mandate, but there is a vocal minority that feels like it's, it impinges on their freedom. Look, I believe in liberty too. I believe in freedom, but sometimes in a complicated society, especially in a natural disaster, we have to be willing to make compromises to our freedoms temporarily to come together for public safety, for community. It's not as though, and we, we have, we have requirements that people wear things. You know, it's not like it's legal for you to run around without your pants on. Right. For the time being, we need to have a mask mandate until we get through this dangerous virus. It won't be forever. And we can make exceptions. You know, I'm not saying that somebody that, you know, is out in a field uh, on 10 acres plowing uh, all by themselves need to have a mask. If you can't maintain social distance, uh, and if you're inside, especially if you're inside, you got to have a mask on. Absolutely. This, absolutely. This is one that's just absolutely flabbergasted me that it's, that it's been so difficult in some cases to get people to wear them. You know, my my four-year-old, who is every bit as stubborn as I am and is in the stage of life where he wants to run around without pants on all the time, has no problem with wearing a mask if yeah. he's just told this will help keep you safe and help you keep other people safe. He just yeah. does it. And the idea that, that it's somehow tyrannical to enforce public safety protocols during a pandemic is just absolutely amazing to me that people think that, you know, we have people talking about not politicizing the pandemic. I can't think of anything that would politicize it as much as giving in to letting people turn whether or not masks should be worn during a pandemic into a political issue. Just Agreed. absolutely unbelievable to me. I, I was really interesting hearing both of you talk about this because one thing that um, I think has been, uh, and I keep reading about and seeing in the news and everything is that the U.S. has been really different than a lot of other countries during this pandemic in that we have not had a comprehensive federal response, right? It has been left up to the states for the most part. Um, everybody's kind of throwing it together and stuff. And as you guys were talking, it really made me realize how much that is also happening here on a local level here in Utah, where, you know, we don't have this statewide mask mandate. So many things are being left up to the counties and cities, um, to the school districts who um, I think are trying their best, but are just like, this is beyond their pay grade, right? To make these kind of public health decisions and things like that. So that's something I would love to um, to explore a little bit as we talk is just, um, you know, what do you think the answer is there? Is is there a statewide response that we should be following? And what steps would you guys recommend taking in that case? 
Well, I guess I'll jump on this one. You know, I, I agree with you that uh, at the federal level, we've had a catastrophically poor response to the virus. You know, early on, the president of the United States was saying that uh, it would just go away on its own, that it wasn't a real problem, that there are only a handful of people that had the virus. And then instead of following the, the longstanding pandemic emergency response plan that medical experts had designed to keep us safe in this type of an emergency, he started doing some of the same anti-immigration shutdown borders nonsense that frankly didn't keep people safe. There were too many exceptions. It was not going to be realistic to try to quarantine off all of America. And, and, and to the extent that that did happen, it happened too little too late. Uh, and uh, and then we did we still to this day have a shortage of critical protective equipment such as N95 masks. You know, people uh, we we have more people have cloth masks and that's okay. Uh, it's better than nothing. But the best protection comes from N95 masks. And if you try to go online and buy them on Amazon, they won't let you because they're reserving them for medical professionals. You know what? Uh, who you know who else needs uh, that kind of protection? Our teachers need that right now. And Absolutely. how about uh, grocery store clerks who are in contact with hundreds and hundreds of people? every day, or people that drive Ubers or taxis or bus drivers, uh, or how about especially uh, the folks that are working in meat packing plants? And I, forgive me if I just get a little emotional myself on this one. You know, people that work in meat packing plants are uh, uh, keeping us fed, doing one of the hardest jobs, lifting, Absolutely. struggling, you know, they're, 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 they're dangerous jobs. And we have known for months and months that meatpacking plants are a perfect storm for passing on this coronavirus crisis, coronavirus, because you're working hard, you're breathing deep, moving meat around in a closely contained facility where the air has to be kept cool so it's not circulating, it's not outside air. Uh, and uh, the, the, they think that the cool air is a little bit longer. So, and you know, we rely on these people uh, to keep us fed, to keep our economy moving. Our farmers, our ranchers have to have these meat packing plants work or they can't sell their livestock. Uh, and, 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 and grocery stores and restaurants rely on the supply of, of meat. So we all need them. And, and yet to this day, there are still meat packing plants that are having outbreaks of this virus that are putting their workers at risk. It's not good enough. We needed a better response at the federal level. We needed a better response at the state level. We needed our companies to step up and exercise leadership and, and not just put pressure on the state legislature and the governor's office to cut taxes. We all want to have low taxes, but we need people to get together as a community and demand that workers get the best protection available. That hasn't happened yet and, and to this day. If I'm governor, I'm going to be fighting to try to make sure that people have the best protection that science can devise to keep them safe and stop the spread of this virus. Well, I also saw that it was reported that the current administration, the Trump administration, cut the budget or the funding for their pandemic response unit Absolutely. Uh, several years ago. So that is troubling. We need leaders in office that believe in public health professionals, that believe in science, and that believe in investing in those, um, 
those disciplines and those people that will help guide us through situations like this. Great, completely. I, I think this has been so interesting. Um, I've uh, been able to hear from Governor Mike, former Governor Mike Levitt a few times talking about this issue, um, who I was never a big fan of because he's a Republican and, and I was decidedly left-leaning, but it really made me uh, value and respect him as when he's talking about this pandemic, he really set things up to be in a good spot because they, I agree. I've been the same thing. it wasn't something that we didn't know was going to happen. I, I, so many, um, I, I work in kind of a business background and so many times we talk about these black swan events where it's this thing where no one ever knew that that was going to happen before. Right. And, um, I feel like this is definitely, this is a white swan event. We knew this was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And so we did have that groundwork laid at the federal level by folks like Governor Levitt, and it has just been absolutely decimated. And it's it's tragic because it's literally costing people's lives. I totally agree. I mean, it, the, and the scale of it is difficult to imagine. I mean, imagine everyone that died in the Vietnam War, all those horrible years. It pales in comparison to the suffering that we've seen. Uh, the mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, family members, coworkers. And, and you know, it's another thing that, that people seem to lose sight of, it's not just the people who died. There are many, many people who are suffering long-term debilitating uh, 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 injury where they, their lungs are ravaged, uh, heart disease, and even brain damage from this dangerous disease. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, I still am interacting with people, you know, we're on social media a lot because of our political campaign and, and I'm getting trolled by these people who don't believe that it even exists because in, in these um, confused, uh, dark corners of the internet, conspiracy theories and nonsense is, is uh, uh, leading people into danger. And right now we need our leaders to stand up and to act as role models and provide confidence that they know what they're talking about and that they're going to do the right thing to keep us safe. And that, in my view, has not happened at all at the federal level. And frankly, it's not happening enough even here at the state level. I agree. And you know, one of the things that has really concerned me, definitely at the federal level, but has been a concern for me very much on the state level, is that I feel like there is a tendency to focus on this primarily is an economic issue, that there's an attitude. I mean, of course, the economics of it are very important. We're definitely seeing very real economic consequences, and the economic consequences are hurting people. I don't mean to downplay those at all by any stretch of the imagination, but there is, in my view, a long-headed approach that the way to solve this is to, is that if we have a strong economy, then people will be healthy. I I think we should be looking at it from the reverse point of view. I think that if we have strong public health, then that will give us a strong economy. That we need to be putting the public health first because, because, because it's just not going to work any other way. That's, that's my opinion on it. And I, I, it concerns me that I feel like our state is not putting enough emphasis in many cases on public health. Um, to, to kind of go on to a related topic, but a little bit branching off, um, you know, I mentioned that Karina and I met through, uh, through, through the Medicaid expansion effort, and I'm so incredibly grateful that we finally got that through before the pandemic, because 
tens of thousands of people who might not have had any kind of health insurance coverage before the pandemic have it now because we expanded Medicaid. And, and those are the kind of things that we, we can do to, to improve the healthcare and public health situation in Utah. Um, Chris, I know that I've seen you talk quite a bit about, and I've been very happy that this has been such an emphasis that you believe that the, the people's choices in passing that proposition and the propositions on medical marijuana and on, on redistricting should be respected and implemented as they were voted on. Um, I just wanted to see if you'd like to maybe talk about that just a little bit. Sure, I'd love to. You know, and, and at first I just want to echo your uh, comments about uh, uh, my running mate Karina's work on the Medicaid expansion ballot measure. A lot of people worked on that, but nobody more so than Karina Brown. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the reasons that I asked her to join my campaign, in addition to the fact that she's you know, smart and hardworking and all these other things too, but her heart's in the right place on this. And she and you, your, your coalition, built one of the greatest electoral victories people on the progressive side in Utah have had in a long time. And I, I, I've said that, 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 so thank you, Karina. I want to give you a shout out. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the ticket with you. I'm, I'm excited for November 3rd. Well, thanks. And, and but but to answer your question, Paul, uh, it's not just a, it's not just the Medicaid expansion initiative. It's also uh, medical marijuana prescribed by a physician. There, obviously, there's a lot of hard problems associated with drugs, but in, in 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 different types of drugs. But there's a majority of Utahns that have come to the recognition that when it's justified by a doctor, medical marijuana can alleviate suffering and is a more effective type of medicine than, for example, opioids. And we know that there's been a scourge of uh, opioid overdoses that has killed so many people in our state and medical marijuana is a safer way to go. The public saw this and in their wisdom adopted a ballot measure implementing a medical marijuana law in the state. And then also one of the biggest challenges we faced in recent years in maintaining fair elections is the temptation of state legislators to that they pack in, uh, in our state, especially Democrats, into individual clusters, into one district, and, and then save a bunch of other larger districts that are you know, more evenly balanced, but still very much majority Republican. And by doing that, they can create far disproportionate uh, 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 representation for Republicans than for Democrats. And also troublingly, because in Utah, the, the racial ethnic minorities tend to be don't count for as much as majority white votes uh, because they don't get as much representation. They're packed into districts in a way that dilutes their their electoral vote. To to the great credit of the of the good people of Utah, they came to understand this problem, and a majority of them, many of whom were crossing party lines to vote against their political interests as Republicans agreed to have a fair legislative districting ballot measure. Well, all three of those ballot measures immediately afterwards, the state legislature 
uh, went in and rewrote those laws and watered them down significantly, creating contingencies and exceptions and barriers and red tape and loopholes in a bunch of complicated ways. Uh, and, and then the governor's office and the lieutenant governor went right along with that path. You know, it's one thing to say that uh, Republicans have a, a majority vote. I get that. A lot of people, and I, I respect that. Everybody gets to be entitled to the representation that they want. But on these issues, no, it's not. The, the public voted. We know that I'm and, and Karina are on the right side of those issues. And I want your listeners to know that we're going to be listening to them and fighting to protect their votes in not only the three ballot measures that we've already talked about, but other ballot measures that come down the road. We're going to, a centerpiece of our campaign is listening to voters and respecting their wishes, not just the wishes of lobbyists, of the privileged elite who have great connections to uh, uh, those that are in power in the state uh, or, or party insiders in one party or another. We want to focus on the public interest. That is really great to hear because I, um, yeah, I felt very much not listened to for a very long time on the Medicaid expansion issue. And then when, when we passed that, we did everything right. And and it was simply, in my opinion, an abuse of power to try to water that down. And we need people in our state government who, who respect what voters have to say, whether they agree with it or not. And so it's really great to hear those things. Yeah. Um, we are, are getting close to, to finishing up our time here, but um, as we finish, um, is there anything you could tell me just about what your plans, what your approach to healthcare and public health issues, both with the pandemic and otherwise, would be in the future in your administration if you're elected in November? Well, thanks, Paul. Um, you know, as governor, I'll, uh, I will be focused on trying to expand access to affordable health care. Um, and, and I think, as you know, you know, although Karina as lieutenant governor will be focused on elections and some of the other constitutional responsibilities, I'm pretty sure that if I mess that up, she's going to walk down the hall and let me hear it. But she, you know, we're going to be eye to eye on that, I'm certain. I, I, I believe that uh, health care should be considered a basic human right of all people. And in our, in our country, we've had a, a real challenge in trying to get our free enterprise system, uh, you know, where we, which is something that we all believe in, by and large. I mean, we, you know, the free enterprise has served uh, America well. But there are some uh, markets that haven't worked very well. You know, uh, we don't have a free enterprise market in uh, uh, firefighting. We have a socialized firefighting system. And you know, what is the right balance of all of that in, in, in healthcare? Well, those are big questions. And it's something that ultimately Congress is going to have to do the lion's share of the reform because so much of our system is driven by federal law and federal programs. But what you can have confidence in is that at every step of the way, as the governor's office in Utah has opportunities to either expand or contract health care, I'm going to be fighting for more health care for more people at more affordable prices. Uh, and, and one thing I'll mention in particular, you know, just we've been talking a lot about the, the Medicaid ballot measure. Just because we've passed that now and have had a success on that, 
it doesn't mean that the state legislature can't come back and undo it. This is not written into the state constitution. Uh, it only takes a majority vote in the state legislature. Uh, and next January, when they go into a session, or maybe even the January after that, if they decide that the budget numbers aren't looking the way they want them to, uh, they can come back and, uh, and repeal that expansion. And one thing that I will promise you is that if I'm elected governor, they'll have to do that over my veto. Again, I'm very glad to hear that. I, yes. uh, you know, I'm definitely very, very well aware of of the fact that there is still the possibility the legislature can attempt to make changes at any time. I have to be honest, I get a little panicked every time there's a special session of the legislature worried they're going to try to sneak something through. Yeah. So it would be awfully great to have someone there that we knew was trying to protect what the voters chose to do and trying to protect people's health and lives because I mean, you know, what you say about about free enterprise working in some things and not in others when I needed a kidney transplant this amazing free market healthcare system that people like to talk about wasn't there for me I if I had been relying just on free market healthcare I'd be dead it was the the public systems, the government systems, Medicare and Medicaid that were in place that allowed me to stay alive and allowed my kids to be born. And if we had been going just by the free market, that wouldn't have happened. And I had as good a support system as an individual, as, as a person can possibly have. I had, um, you know, I was an actor at the time and I had the most successful theater company in the state um, raising raising money at their performances for my my kidney transplant that's and that's eight sold out performances of 500 people in the audience a week and and what they raised for me and my kidney donor was it, it was amazing I'll always be incredibly grateful for it but it didn't it wouldn't have covered 10% of a $79,000 surgery it was people like to hear the inspiring stories of how supposedly we can do these things without government help, but in many cases, that's just not the case, even with the best possible support systems. We need more help, and I think that that is something that we as a society can make a moral choice to do. And Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really interesting anytime we talk about healthcare and, you know, it's kind of become a signature like democratic issue. But I think really once we start talking about it, and um, I'm, this is a shout out to all my family members who listen who are Republicans, you know, we, when we start talking about these issues, we end up on the same page, right? We want people to be able to have access to that healthcare. And so I just, uh, that would be my plea is to really think about. Um, how you view healthcare and how, um, you know, this pandemic has really shown that we all know someone who is vulnerable and we all know someone who needs that support and, and really consider that, consider crossing the aisle to vote on that issue because, um, because obviously Chris and Karina are intelligent, smart people. They're going to be listening to my personal hero, Angela Dunn, uh, about, you know, when she's telling us to do these things and for some reason no one wants to listen to her. Um, 
so, you know, I, I really think this is one of those things that shouldn't be a, a party issue. It, like Chris said, it's a human rights issue and we all, we, we need to take care of each other. That's, um, you know, the beauty of civilization, right? Is how we, how we care and look after our sick and our disabled and our elderly and things like that. And um, I, I think that's a really beautiful thing and it's something that we've lost sight of. Absolutely. You know, I'm just going to come back to where the title of this show comes from with people who try to argue that healthcare is not a human right. You know, in, in the Declaration of Independence, the first inalienable right that's mentioned is life. We are entitled to life. And there's a reason that comes forth because without life, none of the other rights matter. You can't use the other rights if you don't have life. And that is why I'm so passionate about healthcare being a human right, something everyone should have access to. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we'll step off of our soapboxes now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I agree with, with all of you what you said. And, and when we talk about different issues that affect, you know, us as Utahns, as Americans, they affect all of us, you know, regardless of party. And, you know, healthcare is so important. And that's why I got what drew me into politics because my mother passed away in the healthcare coverage gap. And so I think when, when leadership is open to um, communicating and working with uh, experts in different fields uh, in science and public health, then we have a better outcome. And, and we have so many smart and wonderful people in Utah. Um, we we ha live in a great state, you know, good things are happening in Utah, but there's, some things that we can improve on. And so I'm, I'm happy to be a candidate for Lieutenant Governor. And I love Utah, I love, I love Utahns, and I'm excited to, for the election. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Um, I was excited to vote for you before. I'm more excited now. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Paul and Katie, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. You know, just in closing, from my perspective, I want you to know and I want your listeners to know that we are going to fight for you and that we're going to try to implement laws and a way that takes the interests of ordinary citizens into account. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, all of you who listened tonight, for joining us. We we'll hope you'll come back and join us again for future episodes and go back to listen, listen to any past episodes you haven't heard yet. Um, Chris and Karina, thank you so much for joining us and have a great night. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, Paul and Katie. Good night.